um, I feel extremely honored to be here, and I, uh, I thank the Rappaport family, and I thank Grisha, which I regard as my spiritual home, even though I don't get to spend all of my time in New York, it's always a pleasure to be here and to teach at Drisha. Um, and I will just note that I am probably the only person who regular, regularly teaches at Drisha who came to the institution by way of kickboxing and teaching kickboxing in the summer high school program. So, <laughs> anyway, all right, great. So, um, as Dr. Rappaport said, I am hoping to speak tonight about two kinds of, thank you, about two kinds of sources. Um, we will be looking at some classical rabbinic midrash, but first I would like to summarize for you a story by Sholem Aleichem that appeared in 1906. It's called Der Oirech, or in Hebrew, Ha'oreach, the guest. Now, there was a... Uh, very lively custom of writing short stories for the holiday supplements that would appear in the Jewish newspapers before, um, before Sukkot, Pesach, and Purim. There were these special editions, and the newspapers would solicit special fiction that was thematically related in some way to the upcoming holiday. And all of the great Yiddish fiction writers participated in this custom pretty much, including, of course, Sholem Aleichem, who's probably the best known of the lot. And so I'd like to tell you a little bit about, about this story. It is told through the eyes of a child narrator. Um, and he remembers, he opens with the memory of a conversation between his father, Reb Yoyne, and the shamas of their synagogue, of their shul. And the shamus is saying, have I got a Pesach guest for you? He's no ordinary Jew. Let me tell you, this man is, is an etrog. What do you mean he's an etrog? Uh, you know, an etrog. What, what do you mean by that? He's silken. He is made of silk. He's refined. He's not your ordinary grade of coarse Jew. He will enhance and grace your table. And so this guest comes. And indeed, we are tipped off right away through this child's eyes that this is no ordinary guest. The child is very curious about him, and he starts to observe him in shul before they even go home to the Seder. And he sees that, he's, that this guest is wearing a streimel, a traditional Hasidic hat of beaver fur, but he's also wearing a Turkish robe that is striped with yellow, blue, and uh, red or crimson appliques. So he's not dressed like your, your everyday Jew. And he greets everyone after the services are over with shalom, shalom. And it's written out in the Yiddish with extra vowels to indicate the pronunciation is not sholom, sholom. It's shalom, shalom. So he is distinct in appearance. He is distinct in speech. He comes to their house, and it's time for the Seder to get underway. And Sholem Aleichem has a little bit of wonderful irony here, where he has his child narrator very excited and proud that he's able to follow their conversation in Hebrew. Because the, the funny thing about this guest is that his only chedrin, his only deficiency, is that he doesn't speak our language, Yiddish. What language does he speak? Only Lashon Kodesh, only the Holy Tongue. So the child is very excited that he's able to follow the sophisticated Hebrew conversation. He's so excited, in fact, that he reproduces it from memory, word for word. So I'm going to read it to you and translate. Der Tate, his father, says, Nu, auf unser Lashon Zodos heißen, macht seit Meichel Kiddush. Nu, in our language, that means, please, make Kiddush. Der Eurech, no, no. The guest says, no, no. Auf unser Loschen soll das heißen, macht, macht. In our language, that means, no, go ahead, make it, make it. Der Tate, no, verwosnit ihr. The father says, no, why not you? Der Eurech, oh, no. The guest replies to that, oh, no. 
veröffentlicht. Ju, why not? Der Tate, io, frier hier. So the father says, you first. Der Eurich, oi, you know, you go ahead. It goes on like this for a few more lines, which I'm not going to read to you. And finally, the culmination of the conversation is, i, o, nu, that's the father talking, and the boy takes that to mean, uh, what would it hurt you to make it first? To which the guest finally responds, If you really want it to be me, so let it be me. So this is the, this is the uh, way that the Seder starts off. And they proceed pretty quickly through the ritual portion. The, the guest makes a very exotic sounding kiddush that's full of pasechs, it's full of the ah sound, which is distinctive to Sephardic pronunciation of Hebrew, as opposed to the more Eastern European Yiddish with its many aw sounds. And, um, and then the, the ritual portion of the Seder is dispensed with and it's time to talk. And the father of the family, Rabbi Yoyna, starts out by asking the guest, Mashimchem, what is your name? And I take this actually to be a calc from the Yiddish. Ordinarily in Hebrew it would be Mashmecha or Mashimcha in the singular. But in Yiddish, the respectful form when addressing a new acquaintance or a stranger would be Ir. Um, it, which is technically a plural form. It's you plural. So he kind of transfers the Yiddish convention onto the Hebrew and he asks Mashimchem. And the answer to that question is Ich bakar galash damat henech vasam zen chesef tat. Which, if you're following closely, is pretty nonsensical for a name. It's designed to sound exotic. And of course, it recapitulates the order of the first nine letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So he has this, it's, it's like something out of Dr. Seuss, you know. Um, and so he wants to know where are you from and uh, what is it like there. And so the guest starts to describe where he's from. And I'm going to read you a little bit of this and translate. Um, first of all, what a journey he's had to even get to their town. He comes from a Medina, was Eder Mekunzuzuir, Muzmen, Ariber Schwimmen, Sieben Yomem, Meta Midbar. Und was zu dem Midbar allein darf man gehen, nicht winziger wie 40 Tag mit 40 Nacht. Und als man kommt schon zu Gor Neuens, bedarf man Arufkletterin auf Azaheuchenberg, etc., etc. So he describes coming from a land where you have to swim across seven rivers, and then there's a desert, and then you have to climb a mountain, and it takes 40 days and 40 nights, so it's been quite a journey to even get to them. Now, the place itself, he says, is a Gan Eden Hatachton. It's a um, paradise. It's nothing short of an earthly paradise. Um, he says, so I'm just starting in the middle of the description. Und so the houses there are, are constructed out of fragrant pine, out of tenenboim, the um, pine tree. And the houses themselves are covered in silver. And there is gold to be found and picked up on the streets. Now, this story is being written in 1906, right? Think how resonant this idea of the golden in Medina, the golden land, where sure, money just grows on trees and the gold is there for the taking, right? Think of how resonant that must have been. Um, Sholem Aleichem, by the way, referred to this country, his adoptive home, as America Gonef, America the thief, right? So, you know, there was this illusion of this, incredible wealth, but when you actually got here, it's a little bit of a different story. Anyway, this guest goes on to describe this incredible wealth. And by the way, 
beschaff meise tut er eure guck auf die silberne käuses unsere mit die silberne lepel goblin und messers while he's talking this guest is glancing over at the family's modest little collection of silver cups plates spoons knives oh you in the audience you've You're too smart. You've read too many stories. Um, meanwhile, he's going on with his tale of the diamonds that are available. He gives a little sidewise, sideways glance at the mother's own modest necklace with her, her modest stones in it. Um, so this really sets the boy's imagination afire. And he starts dreaming if he could go to this land, he would bring back, he would fill his pockets, and he would bring back so much to his mother. And the mother asks a very probing question of the guest, which is, why, why didn't you bring any of this with you? And the guest says, oh, you can't leave the land with any of this wealth. You have to leave it behind on pain of death. Um, and then he goes on to describe not just the physical aspects of his putative homeland, but the kind of social order. So it says, Er sagt, Ad geheren geheren dos in ganzen zu die dortige Jiden. So who does the land belong to? It belongs to all of this wealth, all of this fabulousness, belongs to the Jews of that place. Was meruft ze Sfardim, who are called Sfardim. And they have their own king, Zogter. Also a Jew. Vera Frumerid. Mita Streimel Zogter. Und Rufen Rufmenim Yosef ben Yosef. So this king has a Streimel, and he's called Yosef ben Yosef, which is itself a marker of exoticism, because the Ashkenazi custom, as we know, is not to name after a living parent, but the Sephardic custom is to do so. So this is a Sephardic king, and so the, he's Joseph, son of Joseph. Er is a kayen gadol zogter, by the Sephardim, un forta rois zogter, in a gildene karate, mit zex brennende ferd. So he is a kohen gadol, And when he goes out, it's in a golden chariot with six burning horses, you know, horses that are really on fire. And so he goes on in this way, melding the stuff of European fantasy with kind of mythic Jewish fantasy. Some things that are lifted from biblical notions of Jewish sovereignty and power and glory, others that have a kind of patina of... Um, of European monarchy to them, and he describes the land in this way, and then the, the kind of catchphrase for all of this is, everything as it was once, you know, long ago. Just as it was. So it's really the, the kind of fantasy of mythic Jewish time and mythic Jewish sovereignty, that this exists even now, in our time, over there, somewhere virtually inaccessible. And he hasn't exactly said that it's Israel. He hasn't even said that it's a land beyond the Sambation River, which is the usual way of marking Israel and, and exoticism in the kind of spatial vocabulary of the Eastern European Jews. The parents greet all of this with sighs. And the boy starts thinking and plotting, how can I contrive to leave with him and go back when he leaves? How can I stow away with him? And he falls asleep, dreams of this wonderland. Um, but it, it turns into a disturbed sleep. He, he's um, shuffling around in his bed from side to side, and he awakes in the middle of the night to his parents pacing and worry. And it turns out that in the middle of the night, this illustrious stranger has absconded with all of the earthly, very real silver cups, spoons, 
forks, what have you, as well as the serving maid, Rico. They've made off, right? So then it's very sad. The boy says, Is Nelam Gavorin? He disappeared. Unin Einem mit ihm is Nelam Gavorin by uns Asach Zachen. And along with him disappeared many things of ours. Alle silberne Kaisis, all of our silver cups. Alle silberne Lepel, all of our silver spoons. Goplen und Messers, forks and knives. Dos ganze bissel Zirung der Mames, all of mother's little uh, collection of jewelry. Und euch Mesumengeld, and also all the cash that we had on hand. Und euch Rickel die Moid, and also Rickel the serving maid, is mit ihm antrunen geworden. She had run away with him. And so the, the boy laments, and he says, Look, it's not that I miss the silver, it's not that I miss our family's property that disappeared. Nor of dem glicklichen glicklichen land, but rather I'm mourning that happy, happy land. Was wagrin sich dorten brillanten perlen die menten und auf dem Beise mitisch mit die Kohanem, mit die Levim, mit in Orgel, mit Misbeach, mit die Korbanes und mit die alle ibrige gute Sachen. So it's not just that he misses his family's things, but he misses the idea of this place that's shining with diamonds and pearls and that has a functioning temple, a Beit HaMikdash, with its priests and its Levites and its... And this is an interesting thing. This was all discussed earlier in the story. And its organ, because they asked specifically, they asked the guest, and is there, there's a Beit HaMikdash? Does it have an organ? Right? And he says, oh, yes, there's an organ, there's an organ. So, um, and the boy misses the organ right alongside the, um, the altar, the Mizbeach, and the sacrifices, and all of the other good things. Was mohot by mir avekeroit, zugenumen, zugenumen, zugenumen. All of these things that, I, that we were robbed of, that were taken, taken, taken from us. Right? And then the last sentence of the story, um, which as I actually didn't get to consult the English, but I heard from somebody that this, is, this does exist in English translation, but they leave out the last sentence. So in case you go look it up, I'll just read it to you. Un ich kermich um mit ponem zum Wand und vain, vain, stiller hate. I turn myself around with my face to the wall and I cry, cry silently. Right? So the boy is in a state of total disillusion. He, he had been in a state of great illusionment, right? That there was this wonderful illusion that had been painted before him. Um, and now he's in a state of complete disillusionment and so much has been taken from him. Now this is a description of a miraculous reality by a master manipulator, right? And the manipulation is interpersonal in this text. But it's also narratorial. Um, it's also at the level of the narrative. And I'm going to argue that while this Eirich took something from the bereft child narrator, he left behind something of even greater value to the adult that that narrator would become. And so now I want to leave Sholem Aleichem and I want to jump back a few centuries to Maimonides and ask you to look at the first source on your sheet. Now we're going to look at the Rambam on miracles. Maimonides views miracles as a function of prophecy. He does not expend a lot of energy talking about miracles themselves, but he views them as the kind of thing that a prophet does, and he does expend a tremendous amount of energy in describing what constitutes a prophet, what a prophet needs to be and do, and how a prophet functions in the world. And Maimonides' idea about um, the miracles, particularly connected with the exodus from Egypt, is that they are performed sparingly, not in a gratuitous fashion. It wasn't a matter of Moses convincing the people that he was a prophet by means of miraculous activity, but rather that every single thing that he did in leaving Egypt and then subsequently in the desert, 
he did in order to meet the needs of the situation. So let's just look at this first uh, source, number one. Moshe Rabbeinu lo ha'aminu bo Yisrael mipnei ha'otot So the people of Israel did not believe in Moses because of the miracles that he wrought. Sheha'amin al-pi ha'otot Really, it's not legitimate to believe in someone because of miracles, because of signs and wonders, because miracles, so-called miracles, soi-disant miracles, can be performed through mere magic. Ella! But rather, all of the wonders that Moses worked in the desert, he did according to necessity. Not in order to prove himself as a prophet. So it was necessary to bring down, to sink the Egyptians, and therefore he split the sea and drowned them in it. We needed food, and so he brought down the manna. And I think it's interesting that there Maimonides slips into the first person plural, we. Um, the rest of it is not written in that way. Tsamu, batala heneta even. They, notice, we're back to the third person, they were thirsty, so he split the rock for them. Kafrubo adat korach, balaaotan haaretz. So the congregation, the group around korach, um, defamed him, and so the earth swallowed them. V'chein sha'ar kol haotot, and so it was with the rest of the miracles. Uvameha minubo. What caused the people to believe in him? On what basis did they believe in him? Um, so our own eyes saw, our own ears heard, etc., etc. So that was not, as far as Maimonides is concerned, that was not fundamentally miraculous. A, a miracle, an ot, a, a sign, a wonder, is when you can't see the mechanism at work. When he strikes the rock and bam, there's water and you don't know how it happened. But to Maimonides, it was a matter of manifest common knowledge and common experience, um, the, the revelation at Sinai. And to him, therefore, it is not really miraculous. Now, what I want us to draw from this source in particular is that Maimonides, as a good medieval rationalist, does not want to view Moses or God as a manipulator of the natural order, right? God is not a manipulator. He altered the course of nature as little as possible. Uh, the Rambam writes elsewhere about how the the parting of the sea was actually accomplished through the means of the wind blowing the waters apart. So he very much talks about God using the resources of the natural world, and it is scientific after his understanding of science. Um, okay, now that has some roots in classical uh, in, in classical Midrashic understanding. I'm not going to go into this in depth, but I'll just summarize the idea, which we see in Breshit Rabbah, um, that God set conditions with parts of the natural world at the time of creation that they would depart from their normal working at such and such a moment. So God made a condition with the sea that it would part before the children of Israel. God made a condition not only with the sea, Rabbi uh, Yirmiya ben Elazar says, but um, God commanded heaven and earth that they should be silent before Moses, the sun and the moon that they should stand still before Joshua, the ravens that they should feed Elijah, the fire that it should not harm Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In other words, if God set this up when he set the world in motion, then it is no departure from the natural foreordained workings of the world. And that kind of tamps down the sense of the miraculous as a manipulation of nature. 
And so that is very much the Maimonidean view. As I said, it has some roots in, in the rabbinic period. But the rabbis, Chazal, were also content, perfectly content, to envision God as a master manipulator on a pretty unimaginable scale. And with that, I would like to ask you to look at the second source, um, which is from Shir Hashirim Rabbah. We'll first just read the, the verse from Shir Hashirim, um, which says, Yonati b'chagvea O my dove who art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your name, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice and your face is comely. Okay, so that's the verse that we are going to be interpreting midrashically. And now I want to ask you to look at um, two Aleph. Tani debe Rabbi Yishmael, b'sha'ash yatsu Yisrael mimitzrayim, so when Israel left Egypt, what did they resemble? And this is the sign that we are now about to have a parable laid out before us. A dove fleeing the net. So the dove that's fleeing goes into a crack in the rock but there it finds a serpent coiled, waiting. So it went into the sort of the entrance, it went a little bit inside into this cleft in the rock, but it couldn't go all the way in because the serpent was lurking there. At the same time, it can't turn back because the net is waiting for it outside. So what did the dove do? It started crying out and flapping its wings in the hopes that the owner of the dove coat would hear its distress and come and save it. And now here comes the, the nishmal, the referent in reality of the parable. This is how Israel was at the sea. They couldn't go forward into the sea because it hadn't yet parted for them. But they couldn't turn back because the troops of Pharaoh were massing behind them. So the verse in Shmot tells us what they did. They were very afraid and they cried out to God. And immediately we hear, and God saved on that day. So they were in this terrible predicament and they decided to make some noise and attract attention, as it were, by calling out to God in fright, in a plea, in some very um, visceral, primitive, perhaps, form of, of prayer, and God responded immediately. Now, that's, that's not particularly manipulative. You'll see what I mean by manipulative in a moment. That is a situation that has unfolded the way that it's unfolded, and they do the organic thing, which is to cry out for help, and God re responds in the organic way, which is to save them. But now, even though I've divided it into two Aleph and two Bet, this is the continuation of the very same Midrash. This is the next line of the same Midrash in Shirashirim Rabbah. Watch what the rabbis are going to do now. Prepare to be amazed. <laughs> Rabbi Yehuda b'shem Rabbi Chama d'Kfar Tchumin. So Rabbi Judah said in the name of Rabbi Chama of Kfar Tchumin. Different, completely different parable now. Mashal lemelech shehayta lo bat yechida v'hayam mitaveli shmoa sichata. So the parable is of a king who had an only daughter and he craved it's an odd choice of verb. Mit'aveh is the language of ta'ava, of craving. He craved to hear her conversation, her chit-chat. I'm sure some of you have teenagers. 
Ma'asa, what did he do? Chotzi karuz, va'amar kol amayafkun lakampun. So he sent out an announcement calling all of the people to go out into the stadium. Kshayas'u ma'asa ramaz la'avadav v'niflu la'pit'om b'listim. So he gave the word, the kind of secret signal to his servants, I would be tempted to translate here henchmen, and they fell upon her, brigands, attackers fell upon her. And she started to cry out, Dad, Dad, save me. If I hadn't done this to you, he says to her, then you wouldn't have cried out and you wouldn't have said, Daddy, save me. So too, when the Jews were still back in Egypt, the Egyptians enslaved them, and they started to turn to God, to depend upon God. And that began the relationship of gratifying need from the perspective of God. Now, before we even go on with this, let's just acknowledge how incredibly disturbing this midrash is, right? I, I know, abusive. Some of you are, are probably ready to call, you know, defect, social services, whatever you call it in, in New York State, on behalf of this poor girl. I mean, it, it's a really appalling image, and I think that we have to read the midrash um, it, as being somewhat subversive because of this. Now, let's go on and see how it develops. Um, so this is just the proof text for how the, the old Egyptian king died and things got really bad for B'nai Israel and they sighed and they started to scream out. They, they cried out and that is the impetus for God to begin to intervene. Immediately God heard their cry, which the rabbis gloss as God heard their prayer. And so he brought them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, as we read in the Haggadah. Now they're out. And it was lovely. They, they were legitimately suffering. They legitimately cried out. God legitimately saved them. That was a beautiful interaction. God was very happy with that. He would like to repeat that interaction now that they're out. But now they're not so amenable to that. They, they kind of feel like, hey, who needs you? Um, we, we don't want that deal anymore. Masa, so what did, what did God do? That's when he hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh gave chase to them. Um, and then we have the proof text for that. Um, and then there's a, a little digression about the use of the word hikriv that, that um, it uses the causative hifil form instead of just the, the simple past of, of Pharaoh, it doesn't say Pharaoh approached, it said Pharaoh caused to approach, Pharaoh brought near. Because really what Pharaoh was doing was causative. He was causing the Jews to repent. He was bringing them to repentance. Once again, as soon as they saw the Egyptians hot in, in hot pursuit, they once again turned to God and cried out to him. <coughs> um, and then once again, God saves them. And, okay, we'll just read the last little piece of that midrash. Um, it doesn't say in Shir Hashirim, in the Song of Songs, let me hear the voice. Rather, it says, let me hear your voice. Because I already heard it once in Egypt. That was the voice in an impersonal sense. 
וכשצעקו בני ישראל לפני הקדוש ברוך הוא, מיד ויושע השם ביום ההוא. But when they called out that second time, it was your voice, it was personal, and once again, God saved on that day. Okay. Really, really disturbing Midrash. Um, what could be going on here, right? Well, I think that we might regard it in the light of a thought experiment being conducted by the rabbis. They're saying, you know what, we could look at this situation as one that arose organically, but we know that we see the kind of meddling finger of God, as it were, in the verses describing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We know that God is doing something to construct this situation. We know that he's bringing it about in some way. And so let's do a thought experiment, I think the rabbis are saying to themselves, in which we try to construct a parallel situation in the human world to explain this divine behavior. They're trying to solve some thorny theological problems. How could God have made it harder for B'nai Israel by hardening Pharaoh's heart? Furthermore, what about God's omniscience? If he knows everything, if he knows what's going on with his people, why does he need a tsa'aka, to a, an outcry, to tell him that they are suffering? And once we're talking about his omniscience and questioning that, we may as well also talk about his omnipotence. If God is all-merciful and all-powerful, how is it that he allows Pharaoh to attack? And if he is omnipotent, then why does he need prayer? Is he just kind of getting these divine jollies at the expense of B'nai Israel? It's, it's all very disturbing. So the rabbis are trying to imagine this situation um, with, a, with a plausible psychological motivation for the divine behavior. And that psychological motivation is of a parent becoming functionally estranged from a child and wanting to rekindle the connection, wanting to hear the daughter's sicha once again, to hear her voice and her conversation. Um, I think we're going to save questions for the end. That's what I heard was the desired format, so, and I have a lot to get through still. So that's what I'm going to say about that version of the Midrash. I want you to take a look at the slightly altered version that appears in Shmot Rabbah, which is a later text, and you can see that this is a more complex, um, editorially shaped account. And I've bolded the parts that are, that are different, and I've underlined them and underlined them in the English. So I'm going to skip immediately to my boldface print. The, this version of the text interjects the question, Why would God do this to them? if not for the fact that he wanted to hear their prayer. So in the very presentation of the parable, we're framing it in terms of God's desire to hear the people's prayer, to elicit their prayers. Now here's a slightly different and perhaps even more disturbing version of the parable. I'm on the third line of the Hebrew, second word. Um, actually, I should read the citation. Amar... Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, Lama Hadavar Domeh. What does this situation resemble? Lamelech Shahaya, now I'm going to hit the bold face. Lamelech Shahaya Baba Derech, Vahaita Bat Melachim So Eket Lo, Bevakashamimcha, Hatsileni Miyad Halistim. So this is a king who's traveling. And he encounters a princess, a bat malachim, on the road. And she cried out to him, Please, save me from these robbers. Shama ha-melech The king heeded, and he saved her. Le'achar yamim bikesh lisaot al-isha. After some days went by, he realized, you know what? She's really a perfectly eligible match. I want to take her as my wife. Hayamit avesh t'dabarimo. He wanted her to speak to him, presumably to give her consent, but she withheld it. She was not amenable to this. She didn't want to. 
What did he do? He sets brigands upon her in order to artificially now place her in this situation of dependency so that she has to cry out for his help once again. And I see a lot of eyes rolling, right? It's, it's a hard one, this, this Midrash. I, yes. Now, it's, it's really, I would say that in the rabbinic system of, of ethics and social relations, this is so... Um, this is so devastatingly disturbing and atypical that I think the rabbis were perfectly aware of writing a subversive text and trying to get at a subversive theological idea about how, and and really kind of getting their licks in um, and, and saying how God set up the Jewish people and that there is an element of gratuitous, cruelty here. And I think they're really struggling to figure out, okay, how, how gratuitous was this? Was it, was it just, you know, unpardonably so? Or is God so desperate to elicit this speech act for, for which the nimshal, the referent in reality, is tefillah, it's prayer, right? So, um, So these are, you know, taken together, whether it's the father and the daughter or the king and the princess who is a prospective wife. These are very, very disturbing midrashim. But at the same time, I feel like they're really psychologically rich. They're, you know, they're very fertile for our exploration and for thinking through the issues that they present and for their willingness, as I said in introducing them, to present God as this kind of master manipulator of the reality that the people encountered. Because in, those, in that first account of the Yonah, of the fleeing dove, the whole situation just arose organically. But the point of these subsequent parables is to say that this was a situation that was specifically constructed and orchestrated by God in order to bring about a particular result that he was interested in obtaining. And... Now we're going to jump forward in time again to the other Pesach story that I would like to share with you. And this one is from two years earlier, 1904, by Yudlamid Um And it's a fairly famous story. It's been adapted into English um, and made into a lovely children's story called The Magician. And in the original Yiddish, it was Der Kunstenmacher. So just to tell you a little bit about Yudlamid Peretz, Yehudalei Peretz, because he's a slightly less familiar figure, I think, for many of us than Sholem Alechem. He was born in 1852 in the town of Zamoch near Lublin, in the Lublin uh, prefect of Poland. Um, he worked as a lawyer until his license was revoked by the Tsarist government because of his Polish nationalism. But then after losing his law license, he became a Jewish community functionary. And this was a kind of a sinecure, wonderful job that allowed him to work at a clerical job for a few hours in the morning and then to write and to subsist in Warsaw for the rest of his life. Um, And he died in 1915. And Peretz was a was a maskil. He was an, an, a Jewish Enlightenment figure par excellence. But unlike so many of his uh, his brethren, and they really were brethren, they were mostly male in the Haskalah or Haskalah, the Enlightenment movement, he did have a use for, so many of them really had no use for the trappings of Jewish tradition and particularly um, Hasidic Judaism or Yiddishkeit, um, but he really did have a use for it. He wrote a series of neo-Hasidic stories. They had the the trappings of um, Hasidim and Hasidic experience, and they they delved into the symbolic world of Hasidut, but he invested them with these kind of um, secular humanist ethical values that he felt transcended the specifically or particularistically religious. These were kind of universal human values, and he used the milieu of Hasidic Jewry as a setting for, for this. And 
so he, so I, I would like to take a look now, still looking at this question of, of miracles and how miracles are, are figured and the question of manipulating nature. While Peretz figures the miraculous as magic, pure and simple, or perhaps I should say as magic, pure and complex. There's, a, there's an excellent uh, translation of this story in the Isle Peretz reader, and so I'm going to read it to you read you snippets from it in English. A magician once came to a town in Volinia. Although he arrived in the hectic days before Passover, so now you can tell it's one of those Passover supplement stories, when a Jew had more worries than hairs on his head, the newcomer made a great impression. Indeed, he was a walking mystery. He was dressed in rags, but wore a creased yet still serviceable top hat. And while God had given him a clearly Jewish nose, his face was as clean-shaven as a Christian's, right? So once again, we have a stranger who comes to town for the holiday, or shortly before the holiday, who kind of scrambles the visual and sartorial code of the community. Because as it is in you know, the Jewish world today, as is so often the case, you take a look at what's on somebody's head and you think you know their life story. You think you know who they voted for in the last Israeli election and what shul they daven in and maybe where their kids go to college, right? And so this was no different, but he really scrambled the whole system. Jewish nose, clean-shaven face, a hat, but it's a top hat. That's weird. He had no travel papers either and was never observed to touch food, whether kosher or treif. It was anyone's guess who he was. If you asked him where he was coming from, his answer was Paris. And if you asked him where he was going, it was London. What was he doing in Volinia? I lost my way. <laughs> right? So that's, that's the mysterious figure who has blown into town. Meanwhile, he rented a hall and began to put on magic shows. And what magic? Before everyone's eyes, he swallowed burning coals as though they were egg noodles and pulled colorful ribbons from his mouth, red ones, green ones, any color you wanted. And as long as the exile of the Jews, once he even pulled 16 pairs of turkeys from his boots. Turkeys, each was as big as a bear. They were still running around the stage when he lifted his shoe and started scraping gold rubles from the sole. And the audience was still shouting, bravo, when he let out a whistle and fresh challahs and rolls flew through the air as if on wings, danced in a circle on the floor, stamped angrily on the ceiling. Another whistle, and it all disappeared into thin air. Rolls, challahs, turkeys, everything gone. Now notice that the stuff of his magic, his stock and trade, is food, abundant, delicious, appetizing food. Of course, it was no secret that the devil and his helpers could do such tricks too. Didn't the Bible say that Pharaoh's sorcerers worked even greater wonders in Egypt? The real riddle was, why was such a talent such a pauper? The man scraped rubles off his shoes and couldn't afford to pay for his hotel room. He whistled up more rolls and challahs than a baker could bake, pulled turkeys out of his boots, and had a face so pinched that a corpse's was better looking. Hunger burned in his eyes like two bonfires. Instead of the four questions the townspeople said, this year at the Seder, there would be five. Right? So this completely mysterious figure that they cannot place culturally, economically, he is a true enigma. And so we introduce this figure of the Kunstmacher, the, the conjurer. And um, one of my teachers, David Rothkies, writes uh, very beautifully about this story. And he really makes a distinction between a magician and magic versus a conjurer. And he will go on to say that this, um, actually, I'll read it to you because he says it so beautifully himself. Um, not a kishifmacher was he, the alternative Yiddish word that denoted magician, but a kunstmacher, a conjurer, a maker of tricks, and perhaps of kunst, of art, as well. The turkeys he could pull out of his boot, you couldn't eat, but creating a face tale for moderns was as good as any magic show in this age of disengagement. And what David Rothkies is getting there is the idea that this was the perfect stand-in for the author and for the artistic manipulations being perpetrated so compellingly by Peretz himself. So we have this magician who's come to town, and now split screen, we go to the poor 
poem of Chaim Yona and his wife Rivka Bela. And Chaim Yona is a is in economic terms a failure. He was a lumber merchant and he bought low and he was going to sell high, but it didn't work out. And now Pesach is coming and they are so poor that they have no food in the house. They don't even have candles in the house for Rivka Bela to light. And she finds a spoon that they can pawn. Maybe they can make part of Pesach with that. She gives him the spoon. He pawns it. He promptly hands all the money over to the poor fund because as he explains to her, the poor people need money to make Pesach. So they've got nothing. Um, He goes off to Shul the night of Pesach and he comes home and they still have nothing. And so what are they going to do? And now you're you're ready for the magic, right? Um, But there's no magic. He says, you know what? We'll go to someone else's Seder. We'll go and we'll start knocking and the first door that's friendly, we'll, we'll go in. And so they are about to leave, but now the magic happens. Someone comes into their home and it's dark. They have no money for candles, so they can't see who it is right away. The man says, I'd like to be your Seder guest. We're not having a Seder, replied Chaim Yona. Yes, you are, said the visitor, because I've brought it with me. In the dark, asked Rivka Bela, her voice breaking in spite of herself. What a thought, replied their guest. Let's have some light. Abracadabra. At once, two silver candlesticks with burning candles appeared in midair and lit the room. Now Chaim Yona and Rivka Bela could see the magician, whom they stared at, too wide-eyed with amazement and fright to utter a word. Open-mouthed, each hung onto the other's hand and stood there. Meanwhile, this conjurer conjures up absolutely everything they need. Now, said the magician, let's have something to sit on. Three chairs left the other three corners of the room and assembled around the three sides of the table. Make yourselves wider, said the magician, and they turned themselves into armchairs. Softer, he said, and in no time they were upholstered in red velvet with white cushions. Now everyone could sit in comfort, and he summons the matzahs and the Uh, cups and the bottle of red wine and a host of dishes fit for a king and even Passover Haggadahs by Rabbi Silber trimmed in in gold. Um, How about some water to wash our hands with? Now, what is is Chaim Yonah's thought and what is Rivka Bela's thought? What if this is black magic? What if it is forbidden for us to benefit from this? So they decide we have to ask the rabbi, right? So the thought is that she really shouldn't stay alone with this strange man in the house. So it would be, so they can't send, so, so what are they going to do? Because if she goes, then the, so she shouldn't say, she should be the one to go. But if she goes, then the rabbi is going to say, oh, it's some foolish woman, her foolish ideas, right? But so what do they do? They, str- they stress out over this for a few minutes and then they decide to go together and they leave the magician, the conjurer, behind in their home. And the rabbi hears out their story, and he says, if it's black magic, nothing on the table is real, because magic is only an illusion. Go home and see. If the matzah can be broken, and the wine can be poured, and the cushions are solid, you can consider it all a gift from heaven that you're allowed to enjoy. So they go home, and the magician is gone, but the table was just as he left it. They fingered the cushions, poured the wine, broke the matzah, and only then, realizing that their guest had been the prophet Elijah, did they sit down to have a merry seder. So that's so that's the right. And so the the miracle, the the miracle as the magical. And if you if you think about it, magic is not a bad kind of an image. In other words, it's part, of, it's part of the modern vocabulary of experience, and it's a pretty good image for depicting that sense of wonder that B'nai Israel must have experienced at these otot umoftim, these, these signs and wonders. Now, um, now I want to bring a source that you don't have before you and that I never would have gotten to on my own. And here I have to thank my husband, Adam Zachary Newton, who is an absolute uh, repository of, I, I call him a, a citational genius um, because he always has the perfectly apposite quotation, song, clip. So this is a source I would not have found in my Beit Midrash or yours. It is from a film that I haven't seen, but this is perfect. Um, 
a film called The Prestige, and this is a voiceover at the beginning, and Michael Caine's character is speaking. And he says the following. Thanks to Adam. Every great magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trip has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. So now, uh, as my own humble attempt at a prestige, I would like to bring back the Shalom Aleichem story with which we began, Der Oirech, from 1906. Now, Shalom Aleichem is born in Preyaslav in the Ukraine. His mother died at 13. His father suffered a lot of business reversals. He knew some woe as a child, which for the writer is a great gift because it's all good material. And just to give you a sense of how bad it was, his first foray into writing for publication was a booklet that he compiled of his stepmother's curses. Um, so this story that Eirich is one of, he was really a master of this genre of the holiday story. It was one of 70-odd that he wrote under deadline for these newspaper supplements. And David Rafkis takes this story as an instance of Sholem Aleichem's mythology of the mundane. He says, Sholem Aleichem understood that the folk apprehended the great myths of creation, revelation, and redemption through ritual objects and local custom. In particular, it was the holiday cycle, building a sukkah, buying an esrog, dancing with a flag on Simcha's Torah, leading the children through the Torah processions, lighting candles and playing cards on the nights of Hanukkah, delivering platters of food on Purim, or putting on a play at the Purim afternoon feast, and above all, preparing for and celebrating the Seder. It was on these communal and familial occasions that the ordinary Jew could experience the transcendent power of Jewish myth. It was the time, to use Bakhtin's term, that the carnival aspect of life broke through the everyday routine. And so it is the, the mythic who is represented so fraudulently in this story, the Sholem Aleichem story, by this mysterious guest. Turns out to be a fraud. Um, but I told you that I thought that this manipulative guest left something behind that was even more valuable than what he took away, took away, took away. And that is the dawning consciousness of the narrator, the consciousness of himself as a storyteller and of the power of storytelling. That is to say, the power that lies in the act of Haggadah itself, the act that we are all enjoined to take part in on the uh, first nights of Pesach. If we, if we look back at all of these sources, they have in common this idea of manipulating the world, but also enchanting the world, and enchanting the world through story. And so on Pesach, we look at the text of the Exodus, and we expand, and we elaborate, and we reimagine, and we conduct our thought experiments on it, even when they bring us to disturbing and uncomfortable places sometimes, and we seek out the prestige in it. And we cross over, and this is really the, the miraculous crossing of Passover to which I would want to allude in my title, we cross over into being a fully conscious Magid at the Seder. And so I wish you all rich acts of Haggadah and some enchantment um, at the Jewish mythic this Pesach. Thank you. I think my mother would have, would have loved this, uh, <laughs> this lecture. Uh, she loved Haggadah, she loved Yiddish, and she loved these stories. 
And uh, we thank you very much. You really have made our, our, our Pesach start on a wonderful note. Thank you. Questions? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm In other words, you would say that in the same way that in these Midrashim, God is subjecting his people to unnecessary gratuitous cruelty, that under that the Jews in Rome were suffering the cruelty of his neglect. Putting them into that situation and then not getting them out of it. Not not acting on their behalf as he had. Yeah, I, I think that that's perfectly plausible. Yeah. I just want to make um, two comments if I may. Sure. Because we brought the prestige, I don't know if people know, of Shaul Malachim, but he's um, the only person who remembers Shaul Malachim and is related to him, Bel Kaufman, oh, no. his granddaughter, sure. not only is alive and well, and thank God that she also can speak, um, not only Yiddish and English, but Russian with his humor, mm-hmm. and uh, is an amazing person. And uh, I would only wish that everybody has a chance to, you know, get in, in contact with her. She speaks at events, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just amazing. Right. And the other thing, not the Russian. Uh, and she's very well known for having written up the down staircase. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She. Yeah. It's just she was. Uh, Last year there was a limud specifically geared to the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and she was de- it was devoted to Shlomo mm-hmm. and she spoke brilliantly at this event. Okay. And the other thing is, uh, not that the Midrashim uh, wants my uh, you know help, but uh, we probably <coughs> think that um, Raboni really didn't live in the feministic age. So although you know we we sort of cringe at the at the thought of how they present uh, these uh, women and um, and the relations with that, but we really have to think that at that time um, women were unprotected and they wouldn't be able to survive on right. their own. So the way that we're going to take women in all these stories is really um, you know. There's a purpose to it, and there's a Yeah, so to respond to that second point, I thought a lot about, you know, whether I was just letting 21st century sensibilities infect my reading. And I think an interesting shi'ur for a different time would be to try to prove that even within um, rabbinic sexual politics and sexual ethics, these stories are beyond the pale of what would have been considered acceptable. Yeah. And on, on, on that note, I'm thinking, isn't it, on the one hand, courageous of the, of the rabbis putting aside the sexual sure. incorrectness and the abusiveness of it, which is nobody's going to argue with that. Right. But the fact that they have the nerve to say that, I have to think why they did. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Tovar always said to us, you can't only say the midrash; you have to really delve into what the midrash was trying to say. Right. And is it possible that the reality? of potentially a God who, who left them in, mm-hmm. after, in slavery for 420 years, yeah, yeah. and who, in fact, left them at, at mm-hmm. a lurch at the edge of the cliff or at the edge of the right. sea. Maybe that was just so <coughs> unpalatable for them that they, that they wanted to construct a, a situation where it was random and potentially cruel. Right. Because they couldn't possibly think, oh my God, I did something wrong, or I'm, I'm unworthy or there's some other reason. In other words, they had to go to the edge. That it's a deliberately appalling and provocative image in order to give voice to those yeah. feelings of abandonment and frustration. And abandonment. Right. And psychologists would mm-hmm. say that's a very, I'm using the term, just a very healthy, healthy way of, way of right. acting out uh-huh. their feelings of being 
left by right. God that they're supposed to believe in. Mm-hmm. And so one can see, how could they believe in this God? I'm at the atmosphere, I'm looking at right. they've just lived through, like, what? Sure. And then the Midrash goes into that when Moses comes and tells them they're right. going to be redeemed, they say, eh, prove it to them. <laughs> right, right. And there's magic in that sure. Midrash, too, where right. they have to prove it to them through magic. That's right. And so I think that they needed the magic. And the people yeah. who wrote the Midrashim, the Rabbayim, at the time that they wrote it, mm-hmm. they needed the magic, too. Their lives were nasty, brutish, and short. Sure. <laughs> so I yeah. think that uh, understanding is putting the right. social politics aside, mm-hmm. it's so fascinating right. why the rabbis would say that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in support of that uh, approach, and also to remove uh, any of the sexual politics, we find, and um, I was going to answer this question, the same Mashon, and how it's worked for me about that, with the Kilat Kachal Kadikin, God craves. Right. When speaking of the uh, lack of the childlessness, of the Abrolis and Right. And we know, you know, it's hard to create as much as Rivkor. More without Sometimes being orchestrated precisely because God does crave our prayer and wants to elicit something from us. And they needed an Eliyahu Hanavi. They needed a Deus Ex Machina. Right. To, to come in and do the magic. To crank out a God out of a machine mm-hmm. because their lives were so miserable. Yeah. And so they crank him out and, okay, I got saved this way. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's a little existential angst if we take it <coughs> to our own time. I mean, sure. how many of us sit here and crave a little magic when we look at what the world is unfolding? Mm-hmm. And I don't just see Holocaust, I need to use it closer right. to today. Yes. Right. So, uh, you know, yeah. you could say that uh, it's the magic that we're craving, right. that we're seeking when we make two Yeah. 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 Nate's is net. You mean what was coming after the dove, what the dove was fleeing from? It was a net. A net trying to catch a bird. But, yeah. Absolutely. Right. And then the parents get to be the Deus Ex Machina. We create these dramatic, memorable situations. And by the way, I think that also brings up how much this has to do with spectacle and the creation of spectacle. That's what a magic show is. Right? And there is an element where we are orchestrating that for our children. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And another, another thought. If the age of miracles ended, mm-hmm. and we're told that it ends right. at a certain place in the, in the Tanakh, mm-hmm. and, and the age of miracles and revelation ends, then doesn't it stand to reason that the rabbis had to create it for, the, for us? Right. So, and, and you started out by saying, what is that Maimonides' vision of miracles is, cre- is because a prophet brings it along. So right. once the age of prophecy ends, it's up to us mm-hmm. to either crank it out of a machine, right. make up a great story, or find a way to access it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Okay. Great. Other questions or comments? Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.